You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Dakar, welcome to the show. It's good to be with you, Joe. Man, such a pleasure. So I've been reading your book, Awe, The Transformative Power of Everyday Wonder. And uh, perhaps for a bit of background about yourself, you're a professor at UC Berkeley. You've been central to the understanding of human emotion in psychological science. You've been cited over 85,000 times. And a place that I would love to start, I guess, to kind of build on from this topic is you say in the book, after 20 years into teaching about happiness, that you have an answer. Find awe. So I guess the place to start is what is awe? Yeah. Thanks for that start, too, because, you know, I've taught happiness to tens of thousands of people and, and they always ask the question, you know, like, how do I find this mysterious thing? And, and you know, I think the science of awe justifies that answer. Uh, Joe, to your question, I define awe, and, and this really was work I did with Jonathan Haidt uh, a couple decades ago, is, is it's an emotion that you feel when you encounter things that are, for the most part, vast, that transcend your frame of reference, and they're mysterious, or you, you just don't understand what is happening with your current knowledge structures. So, you know, just thinking about it a little bit more colloquially or informally, awe is when we, it's how we feel when we, we encounter vast mysteries. I, I love that definition. I, I really want to um, delve more into it. But one question that I had when I was reading it is, from an evolutionary standpoint, yeah. what would be perhaps the evolutionary reason, or if, I wonder if you have any insight into why we can feel or why we do feel, or do you have any ideas there? Yeah, I thank you for asking that. I, I think it's essential that we approach human phenomena like emotions from an evolutionary perspective. Darwin did it. Ekman, our lab, and so forth. And, and I think that, you know, in synthesizing all these different studies of awe that I report on in this book and that are happening right now, uh, one function is social, which is awe really engages patterns of thought and action, like sharing and sacrifice that make you integrate into social collectives, right? We're a hyper-social species. We have all these collective identities groups matter to our survival and awe enables us to be good citizens of groups which is fundamental right it's a, just a fundamental thing that we have to achieve and then the second point is more more function from an evolutionary perspective is more cognitive which is awe helps us gain uh, an understanding of all the systems of the world that we're part of right social systems and family systems and cultural systems ecosystems Ordinarily, the mind is very narrow and focused on the here and now and little, little, very circumscribed cause-effect relationships. Awe opens up your mind. And it's like, wow, you know, the earth is part of the solar system and I'm part of the earth and so forth. So, so awe really gives us that kind of knowledge, systems-based knowledge that is essential to survival. And do we have any idea, perhaps, 
what part of the brain um, is kind of allowing us to do this? Is it is it a higher order process? Uh, where's, where's it coming from? Yeah, you know, it's funny in, in, in writing, you know, just reading everything that's been written about awe and looking at the science, you know, your question to me is one of the great mysteries, which is what happens in the brain when, you know, you have this pattern of feeling that's part of awe where you feel connected to larger things, you feel a sense of spirit or divinity, you feel like there's a fundamental truth that you're perceiving. And all we know right now, and this is, you know, this neuroscience can be simplistic, is when we feel awe, and this is studies in Holland and Japan, US, elsewhere, uh, UK, your, your sense of self in the default mode network diminishes, right? The default mode where, network where the ego related processes are activated is deactivated during awe. So that's interesting. The ego death you feel during awe happens in the brain as well. But we don't have answers to the questions of like, why is it that you feel that what you perceive during awe is true? Why is it that you see feel this oceanic connection to others? And that I think that's what's exciting about awe-based neuroscience is it gets us to those processes. Right. And I think a little bit in the book, you talk about some of the, the great um, uh, future research that can be done on all. Yeah. And uh, there are many, many things yeah. in there that I really, really would love to go with you. Um, but one of the things I have to confess this to you, and uh, I, I, I know I've talked a little bit about this on the podcast before, is I was actually a little bit worried about reading your book. Oh, no. <laughs> and the reason was, is I had a, a conversation with a psychiatrist yeah. uh, by the name of Ian McGillchrist. Yeah. And he, yeah. And he, he came on the, yeah, he's, he's a brilliant guy. And he came on the podcast and, and he said that um, he was a practice that he'd cultivated in his own life was the beautiful things he tried not to make them explicit. He tried not to understand how the mechanisms yeah. work. Like he said, he didn't want to know how love worked um relationships happen as he said he said he tried to avoid doing it because his argument was in doing so it would rob it of his power conversely he yeah. argued that things like death and disease we should make those explicit because in doing so we 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 it, it diminishes the power of them um so i was a little bit uh i, th I thought you know th this this phenomenon that that you talk about that has so many transformative powers i thought i'm just a little bit worried but i can tell you i don't think it's had that effect <laughs> yeah yeah it didn't have that effect no definitely not definitely good not. yeah you know well McGilchrist's intuition is a common one and and that's why we do science right there 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 was interesting there are a couple of common assumptions about awe that turned out to be wrong um one is uh it's really rare you know, oh, peak experiences, maybe once in your life. Not true. Uh, around the world, we find people feel awe two to three times a week. And you can cult. A second is you can't cultivate it. You can. And the third is the subtle one of McGilchrist's observation that, you know, because awe is so sacred and it's so inexplicable and it, it just hinges upon um, mystery. If we try to understand whatever makes us feel awe, well, that thing will lose its power. Music, nature, moral beauty of other people, spirituality, what have you, a fine taste of chocolate or whatever. And it turns out that's not true. Um, uh, we find, you know, the more that you practice awe, the more you contemplate it, 
the richer it gets, the deeper it gets empirically. Um, you, when I talk to people who are awe aficionados, and if, when you're an aficionado, you often find that realm awe-inspiring, right? If you're an aficionado of, you know, arsenal football statistics or fine wines or clouds, there's a whole cloud spotting society in the UK. People are awestruck by that thing. And the more they dive into it, the richer it gets. And, and what I, what that tells us, Joe, is that at the, the very defining quality of awe is mystery, is we just don't know. <laughs> And the more we learn, the more we don't know. And, and awe animates that process of discovery. Yeah, and th this was one of the great things that I took from, from your book is I was, I was reading, I read about half of it when I was on a plane journey. And then about halfway through, I looked out and I thought, yeah, I'm all inspired by this plane journey. You know, the Seriously? Fact that, yeah, I, th I thought the fact that there's this floating thing through the sky that – a hundred or two hundred <laughs> years ago, this just wouldn't have been possible. Um, so yeah, so I, I definitely uh, think that it had a very, very, um, uh, uh, very positive effect. And one of the things that I liked about it was I think that it kind of opened my mind to this reflective process that I can take, kind of in the in the position where I really don't understand something. Um, yeah. But but one of the things that I would kind of love to go back to, perhaps just. Yeah. Um, picking up on the earlier points that we talked about is one of my other assumptions when I went into reading your book was that when I heard of all uh, and when you know I, I heard the word I was thinking about you know someone uh, I was thinking about these positive experiences of wonder you know Usain yeah. Bolt smashing a, a world record or standing in front of the Iguazu Falls or the Northern Lights um, but but my understanding of your work from the book was that you kind of paint or as more of a, a spectrum experiences. Yeah, yeah. Um, could you perhaps talk about that? Yeah, what a deep question. You know, when we use words to describe experiences, right, awe, you come up with these stereotypical images. Usain Bolt, I feel awe for him too, by the way, and I'm glad you bring him up. Uh, the Grand Canyon in the United States, you know, uh, a comet coming through the sky. Um, but in point of fact, human emotional experience is on spectrums or dimensions. And it's and it's often there are gradations of intensity. There's softer awe and strong awe, right? There's intense awe. Oh my God, I, you know, I just saw someone die. And then there's everyday awe, like, wow, I saw a leaf fall from a tree and I thought about how life passes. Um, awe often mixes with other emotions. So, you know, we use a word and we think, oh, it's just pure awe. But in point of fact, awe can mix with horror and terror and fear and beauty and love. So, you know, and we've done a lot of careful work I report on in the book that, that really shows that, you know, there are these prototypical experiences of awe, but a lot of our everyday experience is softer, it's more quiet, um, it's subtler, it's mixed with other emotions. One of the important discoveries there is that when threat comes in and, and imbues awe, right? Like, whoa, I have this image of God sending me to hell and I feel threatened about my earthly behavior. Ah, it's awe-inspiring, but I'm terrified. Um, it becomes a different kind of state, you know, profoundly different, our research does. So always, it's so tricky, you know, and Edmund Burke, the great Irish philosopher said, you know, words, we use words to describe feelings but they're only approximations and they have their biases and they, 
they do injustice to reality and the reality is always on a spectrum it has many varieties yeah and and perhaps one thing that we'll talk a bit about later is perhaps or as uh, an intervention for mental health uh topic that I'm very very interested in discussing yeah. but but one of the things that that you open the book and you dedicate the book to your uh to your brother Rolf yeah um and you kind of talk the, the book opens with you discussing um perhaps the final moments of his life i wonder if you could kind of talk about about those moments and the kind of the awe that you talk about experiencing which i think kind of sets a scene for this broader idea of awe that you discuss yeah you know um if you're talking are you talking about watching my brother pass away yes yeah and you talk yeah, about yeah. the kind of awe that you yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah you know joe um today we think of all and again, this is, I think, why we do science is to really start to capture the nuances and riches of things like awe, right? Uh, and, you know, a lot of people, especially in Western European cultures, if you say the word awe, they think of remarkable beaches or skies or, you know, being at a concert and dancing with 10,000 people. And it's all really positive. Um, and I think one of the fundamental lessons of awe is it emerges very often during real hardship and trauma and suffering and and destruction and the like. And for me, I learned that personally, uh, and this was a fundamental reason I wrote the book, in watching my younger brother die. Um, I had the best brother in the world, Rolf. He was one year younger than me. We did, we had an incredible childhood, born in Mexico raised in the counterculture, Laurel Canyon in the late 60s, lots of rock and roll, then moved to the country. And we just had this incredible brotherhood that was just the very fabric of how I live. And then he got colon cancer, fought it with humility and wisdom for two years and died. And at the night of his passing, I was there right by his bedside with my dad and my mom and my daughters and other people and, you know, touching his shoulder and thinking about his life. And then he passed away. And I was a, uh, you know, I'm a scientist. I believe in evolution. I, I'm not religious. And I, you know, Joe, it was incredible. I, I saw him lean into death. I, his face seemed kind of curious and warm to me. I saw space sort of pulsating around him. I felt like some sort of soul in him was moving into a different dimension. Truly, I did not understand. And I felt awe. Um, and a lot of people feel awe when they watch loved ones die because life is so mysterious. Death is mysterious. And then what happened is I was blown off the map by his death. I just couldn't make sense of reality. And, you know, like a lot of people who are going through deep grief and it posed this huge question for me of like what is life and death you know and i think the lesson of that experience which i write about in a lot of different ways in in the book and it's been such a privilege to talk to people about death you know fundamental truth to life uh is uh that here is an emotion no matter what you're doing in life that helps you approach the big mysteries the the fundamental questions of life. 
uh, you know, for prisoners I interviewed, it's like, why were they born into so, in such an unjust culture, the United States, with respect to race? For a musician I interviewed, it was, how can music, when she plays the cello, make her suddenly feel like she's with her grandfather who passed away and was a big figure in her life, right? And for me, at this moment in my life, it was, what do I make of my other's life? And what is life? Why am I here? You know? And that's what awe does for us. It, it really points us to, to seek meaning, depending on the, the moment of our life. Yeah, and thank you for sharing that, man. And I would just love to, to kind of pick up on a couple of things there. So yeah. I wonder, just perhaps two questions um, yeah. that, that I have from there, is the first one would be, um, did the, the, the cultivation of awe help in the grieving process, for one? And the other would be, is has awe kind of changed your relationship or your attitude towards death which will of course come to us all uh simple questions joe thanks a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah but thank you for asking those questions um you know i wrote this it was so interesting i wrote this book i was clearly depressed i was anxious i was gasping i wasn't sleeping i lost a lot of weight you know my brother was I, we did everything together, you know, and off he goes, 55. Um, and at, as I was writing this book, we were coming out of the pandemic and worldwide, people were suffering more depression and anxiety. As I was writing this book, my lab was publishing these papers like, oh, it's good for your stress and it's good for your heart and it's good for your inflammation and it's good for your sense of perspective on life. And I was like, I gotta, I gotta go find awe, you know, and that's and that's what I urged the reader to do, and that's what I did. I I listened to music in ways that I that changed how I felt connected to other people. I looked at paintings in ways that taught me that you know there's light, there's everyday awe around me. I talked to spiritual to ministers and reverends who said, you know, our sense of mysticism is always evolving, and our that's what our minds do is we grapple with these things. I talked to end of life specialists who said, here's how you approach the end of life. And it, it helped me profoundly. And one of the ways it helped me profoundly is your second question, which is, I, like a lot of human beings, was frightened by death. I had early periods of my life where I really worried about it. I had panic in my 30s, which was really about dying. You know, I became a hypochondriac and watching my brother die feeling the awe around it, engaging in this inquiry, fueled by the search for awe, I came out of it like, we don't know. <laughs> There's probably a lot more to the end of life and beyond than I might think scientifically. And what I know psychologically is I feel my brother around me all the time in visceral, true ways, and I don't fear death like I used to, period. You know, and when I think about it, I think, well, I'm curious about it. And so it had huge influences upon my approach to life cycles and death. And it's been so it's been astonishing. You know, this this individual who works at Kaiser Permanente, biggest healthcare deliverer in the United States, reached out to me. We've had a lot of exchanges. He's like, I deal with grieving families. Right. And we're going to build awe into that because death has awe in it and so so it's been a, a real eye-opener for me 
you talked for there not only as or as a i guess a kind of as a as a powerful psychological um uh, aid that we can use in in difficult yeah. times but you mentioned also kind of the benefit that it can also have on um uh a physical health as well yeah. which i also found found incredible um so w- one of the things that i would just love to pick up on this is you, you the title of the book or the subtitle is is uh all the transformative power of everyday wonder yeah so when i hear the word transformative i i don't think of fleeting i don't think no. of just an emotion yeah. so do you really think that all um and is this what the science is showing that really it is something that does have a lasting impact upon us yeah I, you know i mean joe you're you're hitting on some of the big empirical questions what about the brain how about this transformative power of awe um people tell you you know and and i would encourage our audience like if you think of a big experience of awe you know mine was seeing nelson mandela come out of prison at this big gathering of 50,000 people. And, and since then, I've really cared about prison and worked in prison and, and its injustices. Um, and I think people would tell you just like that experience, like, yeah, all changed me. And, but we don't know empirically, it may be an illusion, right? But we do know, you know, we have data showing awe can help veterans with PTSD for a week. Uh, there's new data about festivals where you feel awe, music festivals that, that that transformative power of that experience, which has a lot of awe in it, sometimes associated with psychedelics, I might add, uh, <laughs> leads people to be changed for a year, where they're kinder wow. for a year. So that's suggestive that awe does transform us. And, and I think that it does, but you're posing the right question, which is, hey, you know, this is just a fleeting emotion. It's 10 seconds long. You're saying transformative, prove it. And that will be one of the challenges for future research. Um, and, and I'll also note here, I, you know, it's interesting, what does it transform? And I think what we've hit in our culture right now, and I've been teaching this in happiness for 10, 15 years, like we're just this, the culture of self and narcissism and individualism is at its zenith and it's in crisis. You know, we're so self-focused, that's all we think about. We're so individualistic, we now have epidemics of loneliness, right? Yeah. And, and what are the ways in which we can combat this? I mean, in the United States, man, you drive in a car an hour a day by yourself, you go home to your house in the suburbs, you're by yourself, it's hard. And awe transforms our sense of self. It makes you feel connected, it makes you feel like you're part of something big, it makes you feel like you have transcendent meaning shared with others. So, so I think that's part of the, the resonance of awe right now is, is it transforms our sense of self, which it, we need to. Yeah, and, and it's interesting, and you kind of talked a bit but there about you know, the, the Western world. And when I think about it, I think of things like uh, individualistic, I think yeah. of very competitive, oh my God. Uh, very anxious. And what, one of the things that kind of you paint in the book is that uh, there's this idea that perhaps when we experience or that can kind of be an antidote to those things. It's an antidote to yeah. thinking too much about ourselves. Is that what I kind of understood from that? 
Yeah, and you know, you even up the ante, Joe, with an earlier comment that you know, hey, this is good for your body. It's, it can be an aid at any time. And in fact, we just published that paper, and you know, you're one of the first podcasts to, yeah, to <laughs> know of this. Like, you know, we in the heat of um, uh, the pandemic, we thanks to Michael Amster and Jake Eagle, who had, were Michael's a medical doctor. We had a team create an awe cultivation practice for medical doctors and nurses in the United States. They were watching people die. They were getting COVID. They were understaffed. They were working 16 hours a day. It was one of the hardest times in hospitals in the last hundred years. And all these individuals did is, you know, kind of take a moment, breathe, let your mind wander, put away your devices. And just like you did on that airplane, like think about what you find awe-inspiring right now, you know. And for me, it is, I look at this beanie, I'm like, man, I got this beanie in the Himalayas. And I, I'll always think of that moment when, you know, getting this from this woman. Um, there's a lot of awe around us, just a minute or two a day. And those healthcare providers were less depressed, less anxious, better physical health over three weeks right? Just a minute or two a day. So yeah, I think that, you know, this is an antidote to our times is to get out of the self, pause, wonder, wander, give yourself a moment or two and, and a lot of benefits to derive. And perhaps a point that I kind of mentioned earlier that I would be really, really interested in. Do you yes. think that there could ever be a study done in which all was used as perhaps an intervention for mental health. Well, they're going to happen. Right. And, you know, the, uh, you know, and, and this is where, you know, I've I teach mindfulness, right. And all the mindfulness interventions, John Kabat's in mind MBSR, the mindful meditation practices, etc. are interventions. They're now, especially in the UK, they're doing random control experiments where they compare it to clinical, you know, clinical intervention, and those fare pretty well. And I think we'll, in the next 10 years, see that with awe. Um, you know, we've cultivated a couple, an awe walk intervention, just a, this new paper with Michael Amster, Jake Eagle, like, here's how we meditate on awe for a minute. I'm very excited about nature focused contemplation, which is, you know, get outside. I do this almost every day and just think, listen to the sounds of nature, look at the sky for five or 10 minutes. That brings you awe. So we will have them in 10 years or so, and we'll see how they do. What I am excited about is they're cheap. They don't need pharmaceuticals. Um, they uh, tap into something that we've been, that's part of our evolution. So. I'm optimistic. Oh, amazing, man. I will certainly keep my eye out for those. Uh, Thank you. What, what, one of the things that I, I think, you know, if someone's listening now and, you know. Uh, I hope so. Yeah, I hope so as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but if, if someone's tap, tapped in now and they're listening to this and they're wondering, you know, I I, I love the sound of, of the, you know, these benefits. Yeah. I love the, the positive impacts it could have on me psychologically, yeah. spiritually, physically. Um, but. You know, I, I don't live near the Iguazu Falls or I don't live yeah. near the Himalayas. Um, can we find uh, the extraordinary in the ordinary? Is that possible to do? I, I think that's the 
fundamental challenge that all of this science in my book issues to people is, and it would be a, it would have been a great subtitle, and I should have talked to you earlier, Joe. You know, <laughs> finding the extraordinary in the ordinary, and in fact, you know, we studied people in twenty six countries. We gathered their free response stories of awe. We coded them. And the central theme was the extraordinary in the ordinary. We find awe in the moral beauty of people around us, you know, just how generous humans are, uh, how, how much courage they show, and it brings us awe. You can find awe in almost any piece of nature. You know, I did an awe walk study, and, you know, a lot of people got to walk in parks, et cetera, but a teacher led her students on awe walks in the Bronx in a really tough, urban area and they found awe in a little patch of grass you know one of the underappreciated everyday sources of awe is music and you know i challenge our listeners man just think about a piece of music that made you cry or give you goosebumps go listen to it and ask yourself why would why that matter so much to you and for me it was within you without you beatles you know sergeant pepper's lonely hearts club band i heard that in 1970 with my family and it kind of defined my life like oh wow there's this eastern form of transcendent self you know that you could go after as a human being so so it's around us to to find and you don't you know most experiences of awe aren't looking at the giant waterfalls or you know hugging the dalai lama or whatever or you know nelson mandela when he's it's more about finding it around you the extraordinary and the ordinary and that's our challenge. When I first picked up the book, I was thinking about uh, some music because that is one place where I find a lot of awe. And yeah. uh, and I was kind of going through the book and I was thinking back to, I watched um, uh, the uh, uh, conductor, Andre Roux. Um, I think he was in Belgium and he did an outdoor performance of um, Ode to Joy. And I was watching the crowd and you can just see so many people there just in floods of tears from this one oh three-minute performance. What do you think it is about music that can kind of have that, I guess, transcendent experience upon us? I, you're, get, you're giving me the hard question, so I appreciate <laughs> it. Though, you know, the brain and death and, you know, <laughs> uh, and music, you know. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I think... I think the first thing is, is, you know, and I have a chapter on music and I had that experience too, you know, where it's just like, and everybody has, you go see, you know, I'm embarrassed to say like, I revere Iggy Pop, just saw him recently, 75, 76. And I was just tearing, I was like, I've seen him for 35, 40 years and he always gives me awe. And I was crying and just like hugging this guy I didn't know. And like a lot of people feel at music, but I think there are a couple things about music that, are special portals to awe, transcendent awe. One is the collective nature of it. Very often we see music with 6,000 people, 400 people, 100,000 people, and we're moving together, collective effervescence. And that's, yeah. that's incredible. Um, so that's one. Uh, a second is that, um, that it has and Susan Langer, who I really drew upon as a philosopher, and she writes about how it's a special kind of language, right? It's a, it represents meaning, right? You hear music and you're like, oh, this is about love, or this is about joy, or terror, or 
injustice, the sex pistols, etc. And it's a way in which we understand these, what she calls life patterns. We're like, oh, I, now I kind of understand death through music or, or love. Um, and so, and the um, qualities of that experience are really different than other forms of awe. People often talk about when you hear music, you can move around in time in really interesting ways. Like, whoa, I'm thinking about when I was six years old and I fell in love or, you know, or, and so it has these transcendent qualities to it that teach us about what the big themes of life are. And we do it collectively and, and make sense of reality as the collective species we are. And, and you know, so it's a, a great thing to study is to figure that out in greater detail. Yeah, and I think we've touched upon some really great places where people can find all like, um, you know, moral beauty in nature, yeah. music. And one of the things that I really like about music is the accessibility of it, because yeah. I think that perhaps, you know, uh, someone might think, you know, that if, if there's a mystique around all, they might think, well, you know, if I don't have a ticket to, you know, watch Eustain Bolt, in person in the in the ground that then perhaps i might not experience it so this this would be a question that i would love to ask and you kind of touch on this in the book and that would be where do you kind of see the relationship between wealth and all i was really worried about that question um you know you again it's back to these stereotypes of all like well i you know I heard this guy talk about being in the most exclusive resort in the world on the Australian barrier reef and it's $4,000 a night. And you're like, I couldn't do that, you know, <laughs> or I hop on a plane and go to the Northern lights, et cetera. And, or listen to the symphony. And, and there are these wealth connotations of, of all, uh, the wealthy often try to own all, you know, they try to, you know, have the awe inspiring house or collection of wine or whatever it is. Um, and, and I, as you may know, do a lot of research on inequality and social class. I grew up poor. So I was really worried about that. Like, well, wow, am I studying an emotion that's just for the privileged? And in point of fact, Paul Piff and Jake Moskowitz published this nice study, ran, you know, a nationally representative sample of people in the United States. So it kind of maps onto who we are in the U.S. And, and the opposite is true. The less money you have, the more you feel awe. Um, you can come up with a million explanations of that finding, but one of the intriguing implications is that money gets in the way of awe. And I believe that. I really believe that, that money, institutionalization, ownership get in the way of awe. Um, and so it, it tells us, you know, and it's interesting just to Ralph Waldo Emerson, a great American thinker, he suffered this really big blow in his career when he gave a talk to the Harvard Divinity School, which he was affiliated with. And he said, we can't institutional, we can't institutionalize spirituality, you have to go out and find it as an individual. And I think that's true more broadly of all like you've got to, it's got to speak to you. And most often, it doesn't take any money whatsoever. You know, you can listen to a piece of music on Spotify, you can go out and look at the sky, you can think about what Mahatmas Gandhi did, right? And 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 it's there for and in fact, money is an impediment to awe. So important to remember. One conversation I had on this podcast that kind of uh really comes to my mind 
um, in regards to that was I had a conversation with the psychiatrist Anna Lemke from uh, Stanford. Yeah, I know her. Uh, she she was fantastic. And yeah, uh, big book, yeah. Yeah, and she was talking to me about uh, the chemical dopamine and, and you know, the interesting thing is that how, you know, we, we kind of habituate to what we have and this leads to the kind of the wanting more and more. But I suppose that if you have more and more and more, I, in my mind, that kind of means that you, again, you need more to be satisfied to the point where, you know, you're, you're on a $250,000 submarine trying to see the Titanic and, and all these different things. Um, so, so I wonder perhaps if, if that is the reason why, or, or one of, you know, many reasons, um, uh, p- perhaps that does have something to do with it, but is that, you know, if, if you have everything at your fingertips, it, you know, things kind of perhaps lose their meaning, they lose their specialness perhaps. Yeah, man, that is a really deep question. And, you know, um, you know, we have this neurochem, this neurochemical or neurotransmitter dopamine does a lot of different things, but it really is in some sense, you know, Brian Knudsen and Haber and others like, you know, Schultz, it's really about going after things that are rewarding and exploring the environment to find them, right? Uh, dopamine is associated with exploration and curiosity. Um, and And then, you know, as is true of every feature of the human design, uh, how we experience that depends on the cultural context. And if I, you know, if I live in Las Vegas and go to a casino to Lemke's addiction point, you know, um, and a culture is designed in a way that takes my dopaminergic tendencies and, and puts them into gambling and slot machines and prostitution and, you know, et cetera, uh, we're in trouble. You know, and so I think one of the important lessons from your question, Joe, for everybody is like, we're only as good, you know, awe is great. It can make you curious and rigorous and thinking and calm and you can share with others, but it's only as good as what we do with it culturally, right? What we build for awe. Do we have museums or Nazi rallies? Do we have, you know, phenomenal pieces of music or cult leaders? And and that's our that's our task is to put them to good uses as a culture. One point that I love from the book that you highlight of people, I guess, perhaps in low dopaminergic environments, but still managed to find all was when you gave talks at prisons yeah. and you talk about um, yeah. how you spoke to a group of prison prisoners and you were kind of perhaps a little bit apprehensive to, yeah. but you were, seemed quite astounded by some of the results that you have. So I wonder if you could talk perhaps about that. Mm, Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, Yeah, it brings tears to my eyes to think about that. Um, I uh, have done different things. You know, the American incarceral system is brutal. It's one of the worst in the, you know, the, uh, you know, kind of the Western European world. And, uh, and I got invited uh, to go into San Quentin prison as part of what's called restorative justice, just where prisoners are leading groups to apologize, make amends for their crimes. And I was the speaker that day, and I think every citizen should go be required to be go into a prison and see what we do to the people who commit crimes. Uh, American prisons are brutal, you know, and uh, I was in there and I was, you know, I was the smallest guy in the room, even though I'm a large guy. And, you know, it was, I was like, I was just one of a few uh, people from the outside. 
you know, I was like, wow, this is an unusual moment here. And, um, and so I was given this talk on, uh, on gratitude and, um, I, uh, um, I got to this moment and I love asking people like, think about a time when you felt awe because it gets us away from the stereotypes we've been talking about, Joe, you know, like when, when did you last feel awe? I, well, the last time I felt awe, well, there's, there's two times actually, the, the, the one which happened to me yesterday was I was on this flight home and I was, I was thinking to myself, I just can't believe that I'm in this floating piece of steel going <laughs> through the sky that couldn't happen. But the other one is I'm regularly in awe that I can do these Zoom conversations that I have no idea how they work with people from all around the world. <laughs> that, that it just wouldn't have been possible even 20 years ago i mean for me that just leads to so much curiosity and wonder so they would be man you're the first human being ever to have zoom awe which are all about <laughs> zoom that's amazing well you know so i love that question because it just tells it makes you suddenly appreciate like god this is everywhere right and so there i am i'm standing in front of 180 men in blue you know the conditions are horrible prisons horrible their lives we now know are shortened by 20 years they eat crappy food they get you know they get beat up by correctional officers etc and and i was like i gotta ask these guys you know like where do they find all and otherwise what's the point of my doing my work if it can't speak to all humans and i asked them that like tell me about a moment you felt awe and you know we had this awkward moment and they're like, Hmm. And then they start raising their hands and it's like, you know, my Sally, my roommate, getting to hug my granddaughter, getting my high school diploma, you know, studying law to figure out the mistakes that were made while I'm here, the light outside, you know, somebody said the light reading the Quran, you know, I was just like, Oh my God, you know, the, these guys, if they can feel it, when a whole system is like smashing their spirits, um, we all can, you know, and, and the rich, it, it was the best set of answers I've ever heard. You know, I was just, it was almost like, these are the kind of answers that somebody you would think who is spiritually enlightened would offer you. Like, you know, just having the freedom to think <laughs> or looking at the light outside. I was like, wow, uh, this is a very powerful human tendency to feel awe. Perhaps it's time to to wind down. I wish I could keep you here all day. Me too. Um, <laughs> but I I got a couple more questions here before yeah. we uh, perhaps sign off. Tell our audience and tell our audience where we can uh, get your book and where we can connect with you, etc. But one thing, perhaps, um, I would be very interested to know um, is: Are there any impediments to or any enemies yeah. of all that can stop us yeah. experiencing a day to day? Yeah, you know, and I think everybody would have their hypotheses about the the enemies of awe, the barriers or the impediments. And, and in some sense, a lot of our culture works against it. So the life on the smartphone works against the feeling of awe. Um, no one in our study of 26 cultures mentioned a, an experience on a smartphone. You know, I just think the very nature of it, the algorithms that make it efficient, how small it is. Yes, you can connect to other people through zoom that's amazing you can listen to music from around the world but you really you got to do that in the right frame of mind that is not cultivated by a smartphone um uh, materialism you know and money 
uh, I cited the empirical finding, you know, wow, the more money you make, the more you rise in our materialistic world, the less awe. That's worrisome. I think there's something about time that we've become so efficiency minded, you know, just like, oh, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, you know, efficiency minded, we don't wander, we don't drift, you know, which was really important. It's important to young people. Uh, I did a lot of drifting. Uh, my story was I was in Amsterdam visiting collaborators. And I was like, okay, I'm in this one part of Amsterdam. I got to get over to the university. Google Maps. <laughs> How do I get there? And it had this fastest route, which dumped me into the pornography drug section of town, which is the ugliest part of town. And I walked there the couple of days and I was like, I'm hating this, <laughs> you know? And, and then I was like, life, Google Maps, the whole idea of the fastest, most efficient way to get somewhere is antithetical to awe, where you need to wander and get it wrong and go down the wrong street. So I, I shut it down, I wandered and suddenly found a lot of awe in Amsterdam. So I think we got to rethink our approach to time, you know, and efficiency. So those are some broader levels. And then obviously, you know, things like environmental threat, uh, the degree of religion in a culture may actually work against certain kinds of awe. And I think that's a task for future research to really tackle. Is to think about what's getting in the way here. You know, why can't I just pause and, and wonder about things once or twice a day? Yes. To the people listening, leave a comment below. And I'd love to kind of ask just a couple more questions before we sign off. Is if you were to issue a task, uh, not a task, a challenge to myself, yeah. to our audience, yeah. uh, to help us perhaps cultivate some more yeah. awe in our lives, yeah. uh, because I'm I'm certainly sold on on uh, you know the, the the transformative power that this can have. What what would the kind of um, what, what would the challenge be, perhaps? Well, you know, I, I think it's twofold, and and we've thankfully done experimental work on this, which is. There is this awe mindset of finding, as you nicely said, Joe, the extraordinary in the ordinary, which is just, you know, stop for a moment, pause. Don't worry about the what you're going to get done the next five minutes. Put away your devices and just, just open your mind to what's mysterious about what's in front of you or what's big, right? You did it on a plane. You know, most people are tense and anxious on a plane. I've done that on planes. So that's the mindset. Pause, breathe, open. Don't, don't, don't worry about efficiency. You can do that when you're walking. I find a lot of awe in walking, as a lot of people do. And the second challenge is really for our listeners to go to those eight wonders that organize the book of moral beauty. Think of someone who inspired you. You know, nature, go out and look at the clouds. You know, just look at them for a minute. Um, you know, uh, music, visual art, big ideas. There are eight wonders that can bring us awe and just, just get close to them. One of them, you know, on my way home, I think I look at these big trees and just think about their time on earth and it brings me awe. So it's actually really easy to, as you said, be part as an, a nice aid in our life to finding meaning. What makes a life worth living? You know, obviously awe is about life worth living, meaning, if you will. This is why Dacher Keltner is here, or one of our listeners, you know, your own identity, what we're doing. But I, I, um, I think that 
you know, when writing this book, certain words kept coming back to me, mystery, wander, and then uh, things that are larger than the self. Uh, you know, Jane Goodall, she felt that chimpanzees feel awe, and she said, you know, this, they, they show this awe in response to waterfalls and thunder and big storms, and they kind of get quiet and reverential and move around and dance. And she said, you know, uh, isn't this is probably the beginnings of our sense of awe or spirituality. And the key is uh, be and what that really reduces to is being amazed at things that are outside of yourself. And I just think, you know, a life worth living is that is like, what are the things that are outside of me that are big that I can feel part of? And if you can answer that one, you're you're in, off in good shape. I love, love that answer. Man, where can these guys connect with you? And I guess where they can connect, uh, where they can get the book and, and anywhere else you'd like to send our audience. I'll check out. Yeah, you know, um, you, dackerkeltner.com. Uh, and then you can get the book on Amazon or your local bookstores. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, the Greater Good Science Center, greatergood.berkeley.edu has a lot of good stuff. But dackerkeltner.com. And, and just on Amazon, it's, it's there. Uh, please read it and tell me what you think. Everything will be linked below, Dakar. Thank you so much for coming on. What an amazing conversation, Joe. Thanks for your terrific questions.